Now I'm going to invite my good friend Dave Mason to uh, to join me at this time. Um, Dave is going to be our uh, story sharer this morning. We are in the second week of our series, Stories from the Seats. And this is a series we do every year. In fact, this is one of the most biblical teaching series we believe that we do throughout the year. And you may wonder why we say that. Uh, that's because in the early church, people often would stand up in the church service and they would begin to tell what Jesus was doing in their lives. And that was part of their worship service. And so every year, we want to provide that opportunity for people to share the stories of what Jesus is doing in their lives and to help kind of pull the masks off and uh, and just be real. And so we can get a glimpse of how God is at work. That um, We believe that this is part of blessing the broken world, that sharing stories actually blesses the storyteller. It also blesses us as we receive those stories. And so we just hope that this is an encouraging experience for all of you, and we appreciate Dave's willingness to come up here to be courageous and be vulnerable and to just share how God has worked in his life. And you are going to be blessed this morning as you hear his story and and, uh, as he shares with us. So I want to pray for Dave, and then I want to turn you loose. Hey God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for uh, for Dave and for his courage and for his uh, the work that he's done. It, it takes a lot of work to look back in your life and to look back at at the good, the bad, and the ugly and try to see, Lord, how you have been with us through it all. And Dave has done that hard work, and uh, I believe he has a story, Lord, that many of us just need to hear and that be reminded of how good you are and of how good it is to belong in community and how important uh, people's actions can be and, and how uh, how they can um, affect the direction of our lives. And so I would just ask that you give Dave peace as he shares his story and just confidence and assurance that you're with him and through this and that you would just, for the rest of us, really help us to listen and pay close attention that we could hear what you want to share with us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Dave, I'll turn it over to you. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm wondering, he kept saying about how uh, courageous I am. Why am I so darn nervous if I'm so courageous? <laughs> I'm not sure if that is the, the, the correct expression this morning. I was going to start off with something really funny about the weather, something cute, and that's um, not funny or cute right now. So I thought I'd start with that instead. That's me. It's not going to get any better than that this morning. So, yeah, if I uh, mess up, stumble along, say something that doesn't make sense, please refer to this slide because that's as cute as I get. Good morning again. Um, It is a a privilege to share my story. It's an emotional one at times for me, so I apologize already uh, if I do more of that, um, but here we go. I was born September 10th, 1959 in Atlanta, Georgia in an army hospital at Fort McPherson. I have three sisters, two older, one younger. Michelle is eight years older. She's glad I put that in there. Debbie is five years older, and Elizabeth, or Little Bit, as I called her, Um, she's two years younger. Yep, I'm the only boy in a family of four kids. I never did laundry, washed dishes, but I sure cut a lot of grass. 
We were a military family, and military families like to move a lot. Well, we, we don't necessarily like to move a lot, but we have to. I have lived in 10 different cities and eight different states. All right. So there we are. Um, my little sister, not pictured. I don't know what happened. She's not in any of them. But um, look at my mom. Can you see her? She's uh, four foot eleven. My dad is six two. She's st- a stare up. Can you see that? Isn't that funny? Four eleven. Upon uh, much reflection and a bunch of navel gazing, I've decided that my life makes sense and about and viewed from four different modules. Um, the first one. Uh, my childhood or parents' way. The second, dad's way, which is my adolescence. Third, my way, my rebellious years. Four, my way saved, which is adulthood. And then finally, his way, which is uh, marriage and grandparenting, which is awesome. So to start my parents' way, my early childhood memories are filled with reminders that, yes, I indeed did grow up in a family with four females. I found myself being used as a life-size Ken doll. Enough of that. No pictures. Suffice it to say, I learned at an early age the difference between eyeliner, mascara, and foundation colors. Hey, did you know that Revlon's hottest new color is espresso? Military families with an officer at the helm have a distinct standard of performance. Yes, sir. No, sir. May I be excused, please? We're accepted. More casual ones like, yep, nope, nah, huh. They were welcome, not welcome, and usually resulted in a leather-enabled whack along my backside. I think this bred some rebellious behavior from me even at six years old. We were living in San Juan, Puerto Rico at the time on an army base, and I became infatuated with those big, black magic markers. Not the wimpy Sharpies they have today, the, the real McCoy, the marks a Somehow, I convinced my mom to buy me one, a big marker and a big mistake. We had a very large white welcome to Fort Buchanan sign at the top of the hill when you came in to the army base. I naively believed it was in bad need of some sprucing up with my new permanent marker. Genius that I am, I decided that abstract artwork was just too ostentatious. So I autographed it instead. Yep, with my given name, proudly, often, and largely. Boy, was Colonel Mason proud of me when he came home that night. So proud, in fact, that he decided several leather-enabled wax would be appropriate. Followed by giving me a bucket of water and a sponge and instructions to not return home until every trace of my numerous autographs had been removed. You understand, of course, that permanent markers are indeed permanent, right? You get that? They're at least uh, impervious to a mere sponge and uh, water scrub. So it was a long night. (laughs) We moved to El Paso, Texas, with only one month remaining in my third grade school year. Why we couldn't have waited a month is a question only the U.S. Army can answer. I remember feeling out of place and not really welcome at my new school. 
It really didn't help that on the very first day of school, I got lost on my way home. And I ended up in one of those homes that had the helping hands in the window. I think here in Iowa, you had blue stars. Remember those places? Yeah. This was a time of disorientation for me. And I tried to connect by becoming more likable, using humor, which you may have guessed doesn't always work for me. And I often felt more like a, an outsider, and I felt very alone during this time. There I am. That's before I, I learned that you put the fish out this way when you show it. So, Dad's way. It was uh, during my adolescent years that Dad's way began to unfold, having a military officer as a father who was generally well-liked and well-known as a fun guy to have along. You're just lucky to have him as your dad. It certainly left its mark. I looked up to him as infallible as our father-son relationship developed in the usual way. At least I thought it was the usual way. He took me fishing, camping, and played sports with me and allowed me to beat him in an occasional hand of cribbage. We began to spend quite a bit of time shooting pool, mostly in bars, and on the weekends. A lot of pool. You really don't want to challenge me at pool. Um, practice makes perfect, and I had a lot of practice. Did I mention the bars? <clears throat> I began to notice changes around the house. The parental arguments got louder. Weekend camping trips with just the two of us became more frequent, and requests to, hey, grab me a beer from the fridge, were more common. My requests to have friends sleep over were met with an insistent, not this weekend, response from my mom. I did not understand what was happening in our home. I was confused, and I just didn't get it. But not to worry. It wouldn't take long before I did. You see, that's how it works in the homes of an alcoholic parent. The reality that all was not well in the Mason household smacked me when I was about 12. Seventh grade, I think. My dad and I were going to drive my visiting grandmother back to her farm in Oklahoma. It was a big father-son affair with promises of lots of man time and the usual early morning start that all Mason trips were expected to have. If you haven't got a hundred miles knocked out by breakfast, what good are you really? Come on, let's move it. Friday night, I set my alarm for the early Mason hour and struggled to sleep. Anticipating the weekend's trek, yeehaw, a road trip with my dad. This was going to be great fun. He always woke up before me, but strangely, this time, he did not. I was, I was sure that he wasn't in the kitchen making the famous fried egg sandwiches, mayonnaise, fried egg, white bread, still can't eat them, um, that we were required to hold this over till breakfast on the road. So I went into my parents' bedroom to wake him up, and... I was met at the bedroom door by my mom, and I could smell alcohol behind her, spilling through the door. 
She pulled me aside and earnestly explained to me that dad had actually just gotten home a couple of hours ago. And there was no way he was in any shape to drive. She told me to leave immediately, run to the gas station down the street and call my sister, Debbie. She said, leave now and don't change. Don't get out of your pajamas. Go now. My father stirred behind her and I took off. I was confused, scared, mostly embarrassed. Did I mention the pajamas? Debbie picked me up and we hid out until dad left with grandma. My world changed. I now understood my dad had a drinking problem. Isn't that polite? He came home when he wanted to and how he wanted to and drunk usually. He was a socially acceptable, high-functioning alcoholic. I went from father worship to father fear. My thoughts became, when, when, when would he come home? Would he be drunk or just mean? What could I do so he wouldn't yell at me? It's after eight. I'm going to go to bed so I'm not awake when he gets home. It must be my fault. It's not a great way to grow up. <laughs> Tends to make you kind of odd, just like me. A recovering, codependent, performance-based, got-to-fix-it-for-everyone kind of a guy. My mom clandestinely took us to an Al-Anon meeting, and God showed up and let me know it was not my fault, and I was not alone. These meetings were salvation for me. Truly. They were indeed a godsend. I found a place where I belonged. The other teens sitting around the circle had very similar stories, and we just marveled at how much we had in common. My first, this was my first experience with true community, and it was a salvation. My mom sat us kids down. One day and announced, she said, I'm gonna, going to attend a church downtown that meets in an auditorium. The service will last about three hours. She said, you can join me or you can continue to attend the 45-minute Catholic Mass up the street, but you will go to church. Four foot eleven. <laughs> Next week, all of us kids, we went from veteran Catholics to outlawed evangelicals. Welcome to the Jesus movement of the 70s. My freshman year of high school, I accepted Christ as my Savior, and I began a mini-walk with God. Short-lived and shallow, but full of emotional highs. Such was the Jesus movement for me. Long on praise, but short on transformation. A quick year later, I would find myself lost, and very lost indeed. My way lost. This is not necessarily my favorite part. <laughs> this is the period from my sophomore year of high school to my early 20s. You would think that growing up in a home tainted by alcohol abuse, I would have steered a long ways away from substance abuse of any kind. However, I did not. 
I discovered drugs late in my sophomore year and found a way to escape from a reality I really didn't care for. If it was available, I tried it. If I could obtain it in mass, I dealt it. Drugs were a method of controlling my environment. I quickly discovered that what drug could provide what mood I craved. Probably should have become a pharmacist. My senior year was a blur, literally. I can even remember partying with one of my teachers in his home. We lived on the edge of the desert in El Paso, so there was plenty of places to go and party your heart out, as we said. How I survived those years is yet another mystery in my story. God was surely protecting me. I still managed to graduate in the top 2% of my class, and I was accepted into Texas Tech's engineering program. As you can imagine, without any parental constraints, my behavior was tempered only by my bank account. The summer after my freshman year, I rented an apartment with my, girl, my high school girlfriend, who also was attending Texas Tech at that time. I landed a part-time job in a photo lab, and Steve, I've never let the industry since. I dabbled with school but quit taking classes at the end of my second year. Making money was a lot more fun. Then I took a job in Midland, Texas, and I commuted back to Lubbock on the weekends. My downward spiral accelerated, and then God called me. He relentlessly pursued me, aggressively, with no holds barred. In a two-week period of time, I lost everything I thought had value. My dog, whose birth I witnessed and who was my constant companion, was hit and killed by a car. My house in Lubbock was burglarized, and anything small enough to fit through the window was stolen. Stereo equipment, two guitars, albums, tapes. It was my life at this time, and they were my treasures. My current girlfriend broke up with me but failed to leave me the key so that when I came back from Midland, I could get into the house. So that night, I punched my way through the dining room window, and I broke. For the first time in my life, I contemplated suicide. I picked up the phone, and I called my oldest sister, Michelle, who miraculously answered and talked me down. God intervened one more time, and he provided. You would think that this would be enough for an ex-Catholic, one-time saved, evangelical, prodigal son to come running home to a loving Savior. But it wasn't. I was rocked, but I wasn't broken. That would happen a couple of weeks later. My mother called me on a Sunday afternoon, a weekend I had spent on a perpetual cocaine high. I was coming down, as they say, crashing would be a better term. She proceeded to tell me she was at her wit's end with my father and was seriously considering divorce. Finally asking me if I would pray for her. Would I, would I pray for her? She had no idea what kind of life I was living, or did she? Did she somehow still see God alive in me? 
I never doubted the existence of God. I simply turned and my back and I ran as fast as I could from him. Could I pray for the one person who kept me from going absolutely crazy in the home of an alcoholic? You betcha. I knelt down next to my bed and I attempted to pray. No go. It wasn't happening. And it scared me. I just couldn't do it. I knew I had to get out of that apartment, my own little private den of iniquity. So I left, I went downstairs, I began to walk around the block, and God spoke to me very clearly. Audibly, if you will. This is difficult to explain, but it was almost like he was present and talking to me. I know this sounds kind of odd, and I, I don't know how else to explain it other than the message was clear to me. He said, Dave, you need to get your life in order first, then you can pray for others. I'm not sure how theologically sound this is, but it was what I understood at the time. And my overwhelming love for my mom, well, who still saw God in me, compelled me to respond, I will. I went back upstairs in my apartment and I took a very large and soon to be very expensive hefty bag from my kitchen. I filled it with everything I had of the drug lifestyle. I was dealing at the time, so it quickly became large and very expensive. I sealed it, I drug it downstairs, and I tossed it in the dumpster. Yep, I tossed my baggage into the dumpster, and I went back upstairs to have church. Just me and God. I have no idea how long I poured my heart out to him. It was a sacred and holy place. He healed me instantly of that drug addiction I had at that time. That's a miracle. And I don't understand it. I don't, I don't know how you explain or even comprehend grace. He didn't instantly take away a bunch of other advices, however, but he did take away my addiction to drugs. My old friends would call or later come by, and this is the response they would hear. Nope. I don't do that anymore. And this was the beginning of my, my way saved. Whew. I plugged into a church, joined a college-age Bible study group, and began a course of discipleship. Six months later, I met my wife, Christy, for the first time. We attended the same church, in college-age group, we dated, broke up three times, and married 11 months later. <laughs> How about them apples? <laughs> we lived in El Paso, Texas, working jobs while I attended Bible school part-time. To say I was fast-tracked into ministry would be an understatement. Within two years of my encounter with God in my apartment, I was a licensed minister, teaching high school Sunday school, assisting the youth pastor, and leading a college-age small group in our home. Church was everything. Our friends were church friends, and we spent all our free time doing church things. As immersed as I was in the drug culture, I became immersed 
in the church culture. Everything happened fast, even the birth of our first child, Stephanie, 15 months after we were married. It became clear that a career in full-time ministry was not a correct path for me, so I decided I'd focus in a different direction. This led to our first move as a married couple to Salem, Oregon. We lived in Salem for 10 years and remained very active in the church we attended. And I participated in my very first short-term mission trip. It was a trip to Nicaragua in the mid-80s. The country was in the middle of a civil war. And the U.S. was supplying aid to the Contras. Not a choice vacation destination at that time. And I kind of question why this was a curious timing for our, our outreach as well. The trip was life-changing for me, though. It opened my eyes to cross-cultural outreach in an impoverished country. The poverty was rampant and the devastation of war was everywhere. I encountered this little girl. Her name was Maria. And she was going to be operated on by one of the orthopedic surgeons we brought along. As the videographer, it was my job to document not only her story, but her surgery. You know, that means I'm in the surgery, right? <laughs> that, that messed me up pretty good right there, let me tell you. She lost most of her family in a village gunfight, and, and she was shot in the ankle. She was the bravest little girl I had ever met, and coincidentally the same age as my own daughter, Stephanie. Lord, why her and not my own daughter, Stephanie? The realization of the many blessings I had in my life was overwhelming, and that was the primary impact of this trip, which brought me to tears on more than one occasion. Next came along our son, Jared, and we thought life was on a pretty even keel. There we are. Then we moved to Waterloo in 1995, and I progressed my way through the illustrious and obscure photo finishing industry. Who wouldn't move from Oregon to Iowa? <laughs> we lived in a fertile valley rich with produce and fruit. We were an hour's drive east, we could go to the mountains, or an hour drive west, we could go to the ocean. So, of course, I got itchy feet and wanted to move. Who wouldn't? So began my career as a production manager at McKenna Pro Imaging, a company now that my wife and I own. And that's another long story of how God provided. We don't have time for that today. We continued to stay involved in church and tended to follow our children along their church paths. I helped with junior high and subsequently the high school groups as they aged. And then a bombshell. Christy and I were having serious marital troubles, and we were in desperate, desperate trouble and on the very edge of a divorce. Then God intervened again. After much work with a gifted counselor and tons of prayerful support from our good friends, we were able to save our marriage. God stepped in in several unique ways throughout the process that undeniably spoke again, to me about his abundant grace. There were at least three distinct occasions where I, were, I was broken during this time. Each time he picked me up, he patched me back together with new understandings of what this grace was. 
One time occurred with a good friend, John West, who I met for breakfast on Friday mornings. John showed me that simply being there was a grace gift beyond all comprehension. One Friday during this particularly bad time, following a particularly bad night of no sleep, we met at Village Inn. I couldn't even bear to go inside, so he suggested we just take a walk, and he stayed present with me. He began to pray as he walked, just asking God to take me in his arms. He kept at it until I was able to join him in the prayer, and then he began to praise. And again, he kept at it until I could join in. Have you ever had someone lift you up and place you at the altar of a loving and a compassionate God? I have. Thank you, John West. His way. This is kind of the now time. We're empty nesters. There we are. That's the picture we, how we want you to think we look, but really it's more like this next one. There we are. <laughs> yep. That's the chaos of our four grandchildren who live close by, North Liberty and Cedar Falls. I'd like to tell you that my life is easy and I never struggle, but that's be pretty far from the truth. I have plenty of issues and I don't claim to have arrived at some great peak of spiritual transformation. I'm a work in progress. What I do know, though, is that God is faithful. I know that he loves me and that he continues to show up in my life. I've been spending a lot of time in Luke lately, Luke 15, 31 through 32. The prodigal son seems to be a theme here lately in um, this passage. says, My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. Cool is that? Recently, I've been spending a lot of time here, and that's much to uh, Carla and Alice's credit. I see myself very clearly in the story. My way lost was the story of the prodigal son, wasting opportunities and resources. My way saved, in many ways, is the story of the elder son, trying to earn his way into God's favor. But I'm beginning to get a glimpse of what the father meant when he said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. What if we could get this? What if we could begin to see God in others and not their sin, just as my mom did in me? What if we could live as if Indeed, as if everything he has is ours. What if we just dared to be awesome because we are awesome? Thank you. You know, you just... I forgot my microphone. Here, do you want mine? (laughs) I was so grossed out by the 
I forgot to bring my microphone up. Or, so, or asleep. So, <laughs> no, I was, it was very good. Uh, you just see uh, so much God reaching out in so many ways, how we are designed to live in community. We're designed to live in family. And when that gets broken, which was broken for you, we often will start looking for that community in other places. And then Jesus called to repent, right? Because the kingdom of God is near. So, so turn away from that other stuff and come back to me and be part of my family. And we just see how God invited you into that and how he uh, replaced and restored your community and uh, see God at work in so many ways. So thank you so much for sharing. Let's uh, say a word of prayer for Dave. God, we are just so thankful for uh, Dave. For we're, we're thankful for you and for how you never give up how he said you pursued him with your relentless love and you just kept coming after him, that even when things were broken in his life, even when uh, when his family wasn't going well, even when he turned to drugs, um, Lord, you sent his mom to say, I still see God in you. You uh, Even before that, you sent him to Al-Anon where he experienced, Lord, that, that he wasn't alone, that there were other people like him who were struggling with the same issues he was struggling with and the types of families that he was in. Lord, through it all, you were reaching out to Dave and showing him glimpses of who you are and of your love for him and the life that you were inviting him into. Thank you that he said yes. Thank you that he said yes to sharing his story with us this morning. I pray that uh, as we go from here that we would be encouraged as we reflect on what Dave shared and that we too could, could understand just as he called us to, Lord, that we are that prodigal son, that you are always with us and everything that you have is ours, that we would uh, use those resources, Lord, to, to help others see God's love as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.